Good morning. I have a wonderful crowd. It's exciting to be here. Very thankful to the congregation, to the eldership, for the invitation to get to come and be with you and to join in your labors. I've been looking forward to this uh, since it was. I got the invitation to be here. Looking forward to the exciting week. Hope that the time that we spend together will be beneficial to you. I know it's been my prayer that as we spend time together that, uh, that not only will we strengthen one another and encourage one another, but most of all that our time spent together can help each of us learn to glorify God more. I, when I was asked to hold this meeting or begin to, to teach this meeting, I was asked to put together a theme. And kind of uh, where this came from is several years back, a good friend of mine and I began to study this passage here in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. And as we studied it and began to make application to us, there was a great temptation to, to write some lessons immediately after what we were studying. But we resisted that urge and, and just focused instead on, on personal application. What does this mean to us? What are we supposed to do? But I always had in the back of my mind that this would make a great series of studies. And so when I was asked to do that, immediately I jumped to this idea and began to put together the notes and thoughts that I had. And I want to share these with you, and I hope they're as beneficial to you as they've been to me in my life. It's difficult to think about this topic of exercising yourself to godliness without making the comparison to physical exercise. In fact, the, the very passage that we read or was read for us just a second ago... The Holy Spirit does that very thing. He talks about bodily exercise and then says that profits a little, but godliness, exercising ourselves towards godliness, has a great value. And so it's difficult to, to think about this without getting your mind into exercise. And when you think about exercise and the health industry in America today, it's, it's a raging industry. I mean, you can think about all the different types of clubs that have popped up from curves and uh, CrossFit and, and that just seems like there's the next fad after the next fad as well as fad diets that pop up from time to time and so it's, it's all over this country this movement of exercise and I got to thinking about this thought of how often and how much is being put towards the finances of things and I don't know what I just did but we'll try this again when you begin to think about all the financing of things that have been put towards the See, don't want to do that. We'll listen to a little music. There we go. And I did it again. Well, it's just going straight to the end there. I'm not sure. I apparently, don't know how to get up to that first one. Maybe if I click right. Did that do it? Let you do it. You just keep talking. It's Apple. I don't know what to tell you. Anyway... I got thinking about this idea of how much emphasis and time and money is being spent. And so I went to a website and began doing a little bit of research trying to find out the idea of how much money is being spent. And what I noticed was there's a disconnect. Let me see if I can explain that to you. I found an article online, uh, and I got the website if you're interested into it. It said the worldwide value of the health and wellness products throughout, and services throughout the world is worth $3.4 billion dollars. That sounds like a lot of money to me. $3.4 billion is a lot of money to spend on health and wellness products and services. And I got to wondering, though, is that really a lot when you begin to put that in the frame of a global market? Is that really, is it at the low end of what things are worth on a global scale, or is that near the high end? And this same article went on to explain that when you compare that to what the worldwide pharmaceutical industry is worth, only one trillion, it kind of puts a little bit more perspective that how much money and time and resources is being spent in this world, or the value of the health and wellness products. Now, I want to say there's a 
little wiggle room in that because sometimes when we begin to look at these numbers, they, they seem overwhelming to us. And when you begin to consider how much money is being spent on things, moving a little bit closer to home, find out that there's over $60 billion spent annually in the United States on these things, such as gym memberships and health foods and diets and all this other stuff. Now, I do want to say I think there is a little wiggle room in these numbers. Is, is, as mind-blowing as they are to me, I think there's a little bit when you consider things like it depends on how they classify things. If you were to go to the store and buy a pair of running shoes, though you don't plan to run or exercise in them, you just plan to walk around them, does that count as health and wellness products and services or not? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Depends on who's doing the counting. Likewise, I know that there are companies that will pay for the gym memberships of their employees, whether those employees actually use them or not. And so there might be a little bit of wiggle room in there, but as you look at these numbers, regardless of the wiggle room, that's a lot of money being spent on health and wellness. Now, the other side of this is the fact that 70% of Americans today qualify as obese according to the, the BMI standard or metric, the body mass index. That compares height and weight, and it gives you a certain number that lets you know whether you're healthy or not. Now, again, I think there's a little wiggle room in this as you consider that there are some professional athletes that, according to the BMI, are overweight or are obese. And someone goes, well, yeah, look at all those big offensive linemen. Of course they're going to be obese. But it's not just them. According to the strictest standards of the BMI, a, a fellow like LeBron James is technically 10 to 15 pounds overweight. Guys like Michael Jordan, his playing days would have considered by the BMI overweight. And so there's a little bit of wiggle room, but even with that wiggle room in the numbers and that wiggle room in the BMI, it shows that there's a disconnect between what people are spending their time and money on and the outcome of that. I don't know if you're aware of this, that there's an actual field of study called garbology. It's the study of exactly what it sounds like, garbage. It started as part of the environmental movement where in, people would go out and study what was in the landfills and what was taking up all the space, and, and so they could help figure out what to recycle and all that stuff. But I recall a study I read years and years ago over a couple of garbologists uh, who went out into various neighborhoods across the United States. And they went to these different houses and they began to interview people and talk to them about their diet and their eating habits and how often they ate out and what kind of foods they ate. And these people filled out a survey and they gave the garbologist permission to come and collect their trash for the next six months. It doesn't sound like a fun job to me, but these guys enjoyed doing that. And they went through the people's trash and what they found out was what people said they were doing and what they were actually doing weren't the same thing. They thought they were eating healthier. They thought they weren't eating out as much as they were but their garbage betrayed them. It showed what was really happening in their lives. There is this disconnect. As you think about that, I think there's a Christian disconnect. On one side, we have in America still the Bible as the number one seller. It's been there for a long, long time, but then we look at the lives of Americans and it's not really living up to the standard of God's Word. There's a lot of time being spent in that. There's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, that claim to love God, that claim to want to serve God, but we're not seeing it in the lives of the average American. Someone says, well, it's easy to, to look at all these other people that, that spend all that money on health and wellness and, and they're not getting better. Ha ha, look at them. And it's funny to, to look at these people that call themselves Christians that don't, look, that don't live that way. And we want to point our finger and go, yeah, I'm glad I'm not like that. I want us to, to really kind of zero in on ourselves and, and ask the question, is my life really becoming what God has called it to be? Or is there areas that I've not exercised and trained myself to godliness? To be the kind of person that God calls me to be. To live a holy and pure and righteous lifestyle. 
You know, when you begin to read a lot of the surveys by groups like the Barna Group that does a lot of religious surveys, you know, one of the things that you find out is that those that claim to be Christians, their lives don't match up to what they're calling. They say they've found like the, the rate for divorce amongst Christians isn't all that different from those that don't claim Christianity. The rate of people that claim to steal things from their employee, little things, doesn't change whether they're a Christian or not, not a whole lot. The people that are willing to cheat on their income tax doesn't change a whole lot. And there's this Christian disconnect that I need to look at in my life. Am I doing the things that God has called me to, or am I just going through the motions, showing up to church, memorizing the songs, and being part of a group? I want us to understand what God has called us to is to exercise ourselves to godliness. He says, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of this life that now is and of that which is to come. There is a value for you and I to exercise. I know I'm one of the guys that likes to look at all these people that exercise and go, that's not very profitable. That, there's only a little profit. In fact, I want to get a, a company that makes bumper stickers, and I want to make a bumper sticker that says Proverbs 28 and 1. I want to go stick it on the back of all these cars that have the 13.1 and 26.2. For those of you that know, Proverbs 28 1 says the, the wicked flee when no man pursues, and I want to stick it on the back of all these runners' cars. We kind of laugh and joke and say, hey, there's not a great value in that. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's saying, actually, there is a value in exercise. There is benefit in exercise. In fact, mankind has realized that, and that's why these companies offer gym memberships to their employees. They found out employees that exercise are typically more healthy. They, they miss less days of work. They're more productive when they're at work. And we found there is value in exercise. And the Holy Spirit isn't saying there's no value. And he's saying, hey, there is some value, but a greater value is an exercising yourself towards godliness. It's much greater for you. In fact, he goes on to say it's profitable for the life that now is and the life that is to come. You know, as I stand before you, I've been blessed by the brethren such as yourself to be able to do this work for close to 20 years now. And the thing that I found most constant is the most miserable people I meet aren't the atheists shaking their fist at God. It's not the people living in rebellion to God. It's not the people whose lives are selfish. I'll tell you who the most miserable people I meet are Christians that refuse to grow. Christians that won't let go of that old life and try to hang on to parts of it. They feel guilty and they know they shouldn't be there and shouldn't be doing those things. And so they find no joy in that, but they're still there. Yet they find no joy in being around other Christians because they know these things are still in their lives and they feel guilty there. There's no profit in that. But exercising yourself towards godliness, he said, has a value for the life that now is. True joy, true peace, true understanding in difficult times. There's a value of becoming more of what God called you to become in this life and the life which is to come, a life in heaven. Now, all of you have exercised at some point in your life, and you know it's not fun. You know it's painful. And the reality is, is exercise is not something you can do just once or every once in a while and have a great benefit for you. I guess some exercise would be better than no exercise, but exercising once a month really isn't going to pay off. In fact, it has to be something that's done by reason of use. And I believe that principle is true for us spiritually as well. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 that strong meat belongs to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. But this training that we want to put ourselves through, that God calls us to, to exercise ourselves to, isn't something to do just on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. It's not something we can do hit and miss throughout our lives, but there's a regularness to it. 
And I want to tell you as we begin this week of study that exercise, and you know this, whether it's physical or spiritual, isn't always comfortable. You can recall if you've ever been inactive for a period of time and then began the process of exercising yourself, one of the things that happens is a lot of soreness takes place. The legs hurt. You do that first exercise or first workout and you think, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. But you make it through it and you think, finally, it's over. An hour, two hours, three hours later, you're kind of recovered and somewhat normal until you go to sleep that night. And you go to wake up the next morning and get out of bed and your body says, no, you ain't. You're going to lay right here. And it hurts to step. It hurts to move. It hurts to bend. I want to tell you, it's not any different. We're talking about exercising ourselves unto godliness. There's going to be some challenges to it. There's going to be some difficulties. There's going to be some uncomfortableness. There's going to be that difficulty of putting things away and putting things on. And it's not an easy task for any of us to do. So why should we exercise ourselves to godliness? What's the motive that I have for training myself to be more of what God called me to be? I think we can identify just a couple of reasons. Number one, we train, we exercise ourselves to godliness because we remember who we are. The reality is, at the end of the day, I'm nothing more than a broken person. I've taken a pure life that God granted me, and I've ruined it, and I've trashed it. And at my core, I am broken. In Deuteronomy 8th and 9th chapter, just before the children of Israel enter into the promised land, Moses has gathered them and has reminded them and encouraged them to follow God. He's telling them of the blessings that God has had and the blessing they're going to have in entering this land. But he says, I don't want you to think you're getting this because you're worthy of it. In fact, he reminds them of all the rebellion and all the trouble and all the heartaches and all the headaches they caused to God. And when he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 6, this is why God has given this to you. He said, understand therefore the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess, possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. He's saying God's not leading you into this land because you deserve it, because you're righteous and because you, he owes you something. He said, you're a stiff-necked people. Remember everything that you've done, but yet God is going to bless you with this. Don't forget that. Don't let you forgetting who you were and where you've been change you. In fact, this is the chapter when he says, be careful when you enter this land that you have good houses and that your herds of livestock are increased and all that you have is increased. He said, be, be careful that you don't forget God. And the way that you do that is by not forgetting who you really are. You're a stiff-necked people that God blessed not because you deserved it, but because he kept his promise. I couldn't think of a better way to say that about who we are, a stiff-necked people. We've been saved by God not because we deserve it, but because of his grace and mercy. In Romans chapter 10, beginning there in verse 3, it says, As it is written, there is none that are righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You know, that's who I am at my core. In and of myself, I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I don't seek God of myself. It's through His grace and His mercy that I've found salvation, that I've found wholeness in the broken life that I've taken. But at my core, I'm a broken individual. And remembering what God has done for me leads me to want to become what He's called me to be. You know, I think sometimes we get this idea that, yeah, I was a sinner, and God picked me up, He cleaned me off, and, and now it's up to me to keep it right and to keep my life the way God wants to be. And I think we miss out on a point. You know, before I was saved, before I became a Christian, all I was was a sinner in need of grace. That's who I was. 
I'd rebelled against God. I'd made myself a violator of his law, guilty of sin. Therefore, I stood before him as a sinner in need of his grace and mercy. But once I obeyed the gospel, what changed wasn't me becoming righteous, wasn't changed, wasn't my abilities to keep God's law. What changed is I became a sinner who received grace. That's what's different about me. Not that I changed myself, but that God saved me. I went from a sinner needing grace to a sinner who received grace. And what I need to remember is who I am, and that is a person that still needs the grace of God, that still needs his loving kindness to save me and to wash me, to cleanse me. So one of the reasons I strive or should strive to exercise myself to be in what God called me to be is because of who I am, that I'm a broken person at my core. I can't clean myself. I can't fix myself. So instead I turn to God and he saves me. He washes me. He restores me. And because of who I am, a broken person, I still need the grace of God. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, speaking here of the work of Jesus, A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment to justice. This comes out of Isaiah, and it's a prophecy about the work which God would do. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins reading here from the book of Isaiah 61, speaking about the work that he would do. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight the blind, to set at liberty than a bruise. If you notice all these words that I put in yellow up here are all about brokenness. People that are broken. And it's God through his mercy, God through the work of Jesus Christ that restored all those things. Jesus is the one that through his ability can take the broken reed and give it purpose again. He can take the smoking flax, the wick of a candle that's been uh, floated off into the oil. He can take it and he can reattach it. That's something we can't do. Those that are poor, that are brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the bruised, these are people that are broken. He said, my work was to come to restore them. But it was to restore them for a purpose. And that was to respond to God's gift. I'm a broken person at my core. And God has saved me, and one reason I respond to him, or the key reason I respond to him, is because he fixed me, he saved me, he restored me, and he made me whole again. And so I remember who I am, and I respond to that gift that he gave me, not by works of righteousness, but through his mercy, he saved me. Notice, if you will, here in Titus chapter 1, beginning there in verse 3, the Bible says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves, were also, or we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared toward man, not by works of righteousness which ye have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I think this passage captures exactly what we're talking about. He begins it by saying, listen, put them in mind to be a certain way. He's saying, listen, you need to live a certain way. These are the things I want you to do and the things I don't want you to do. You're to live as a Christian to be a certain way. Why, God? Why should I live this way? Why should I be in mind to make myself subject to these things? Well, because who you used to be. You were foolish. You were disobedient. You lived in rebellion. But look what God has done for you, not by your works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He's making the same argument that we're saying here this morning, that 
We respond to God, that we live the way that God has called us. We exercise ourselves unto godliness, not because we're righteous, but because of who we are and what we've done, and that He saved us. We respond to that mercy. We respond to that grace by looking to God and saying, God, what is it you want me to become? God, what is it you want me to do with my life? It becomes rather, if you will, a logical response, and that's exactly what Romans 12 tells us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or logical service. He said that it only makes sense that when you stop and think about what God has done for you, that you render your life to him, that you respond to that by becoming a living sacrifice. I believe the word body in this passage here he is literally, he's talking physically who you are, but sacrifice is figurative. He's not talking about self-harm and going out and wounding yourself. He's saying, listen, you take your life, every part of it, every fiber of who you are, and you set that aside, you sacrifice it for God, to live for him, to serve him, to seek his glory, to seek his righteousness. Why? Because it's the only thing that makes sense after what he's done for you. Exercising ourselves towards godliness isn't about me lifting myself up. It's about me responding to what God has done for me, remembering who I am at my core, a broken person that God has healed, that God has restored, that God has saved. Therefore, it only makes sense that I exercise, that I train, that I labor to become more godliness. Notice, the truth this morning is that you're choosing to yield yourself to something. Either you're yielding yourself to godliness and becoming more of what God called you, or you're yielding yourself to sin. Romans 6, he tells us, but yield your members as instruments of un neither yield you your members of instruments unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, of, to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? God forbid, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin and death or obedience unto righteousness? But God bethink that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members to servants to righteousness unto holiness. The idea that he's striving at is this, in the past you chose to yield yourself to sin, to fulfill the selfish desires that caused you to be a broken individual. Now, because of what God has done for you, because of the saving grace that's been shown to you, because of the restoration that God made in your life, choose now to yield yourself to God to exercise yourself to righteousness, to train yourself to become what God has called you to become. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning there in verse 13 and 16, he tells us that we're to be holy because God is holy. That's the goal I have in my life is to be what God called me to be, to be holy because God is holy. It's not an easy challenge. There's difficulty and there's uncomfortableness in that call to look at my life and to recognize I'm not the godly person God called me to be. If we're being very honest with ourselves, all of us have areas of life that we look at and go, yeah, I should be better, but look how good I'm doing over here. 
that's not godliness. That's not what I've been called to. I've been called to yield my whole life to God because of what he's done for me. That I take no truce with sin. I take no truce with myself and give myself an excuse to be off the hook. The standard that God calls me to is holiness, is godliness, is righteousness. And I can accept nothing less than that. This isn't one of those places, you know, we look at those numbers to begin with, talked about all the money that's being spent and, and how many people, according to BMI, are considered overweight or qualified for overweight. And we said, well, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room in these numbers. We can find excuses where it's not as bad as it seems. I'm afraid we do that with our righteousness and holiness sometimes, with the godliness that we're called to. We go, well, there's a little wiggle room. I know I'm not godly like I'm supposed to be, but, but I'm doing better than them. I'm not doing like I was, and, and I've improved in this area. And, and this is something that's just, well, it's been a problem for a long time, and God really doesn't expect me to fix it. And we begin to look for that wiggle room. And that's not what God called us to. We train ourselves for godliness just as God called us to because I'm a broken person that's dependent upon God's grace. And because he shed that abundantly in my life, I respond by not calling the truth, by not surrendering areas of my life, but setting God's standard of righteousness, of holiness, setting God's standard of godliness as my standard that I strive for. That's why I train. That's the motivation I should have. I want to add a, a second reason to all that, and that's because you're under attack. Don't know if we recognize this, the danger of it, but the reality is today that you are under attack. As a Christian, as a servant of God, it's not just about making a casual commitment. You know, sometimes I read in the New Testament about the first century brothers and sisters in Christ and what they experienced. And you can read other history books about how they were treated in that first century, how it became illegal and how they were persecuted and tortured, fed the lions, laid them fire, and I think, wow. Man, what a time to be alive, to, to try to serve Christ in the middle of all that. Wow, what will that be like? We think, well, we've got it easy today. We live in America of religious freedom, religious liberty. Somebody threatens that, we march, we protest, we write letters, we call our congressmen. And we think it's not as bad today as it was then. I want to tell you, I think it's just as bad. Not physically, but spiritually, it's just as bad. The attack is just as intense. It's not a physical attack. It's a spiritual attack. And that's why God's called us to train ourselves to, to godliness so that we can fight in this battle. Notice, if you will, Galatians 5 and verse 17. The Bible says, The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary, the one to other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. He says, The flesh and the spirit lust against each other. This idea of lusting against each other means to control to take ownership. The flesh wants to control you completely and totally. And so too does the spirit. This isn't a situation where these two can agree to disagree. This isn't a situation where they're going to say, well, I'll give you that land and I'll take this land and let's just be compromised. The truth is the flesh in your life wants to reclaim the ground of your heart that it surrendered to the spirit when you obeyed the gospel. And the spirit in your life isn't content having what it has in your heart. It wants all of it. It wants to advance its cause, taking more and more of your heart. There is a battle. In fact, the Bible says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims and stain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. It's a battle. 
He describes it here not as just a conflict, not as just a difficult time, but he says it is a battle that wars in your soul. And the question is, is do I acknowledge the reality of that battle? It's a winner-take-all battle. Do I recognize and see that there's this battle raging in me and that I need to respond to it? You know, if this morning I told you after services there was going to be some nice individuals in crisp, clean uniforms from the military showed up after service, and they told you, listen, in six months we're going to take you and we're going to place you on the front lines of the most intense raging war you've ever seen. It's worse than World War I, World War II, the Civil War, all the wars that America's ever fought in. It's worse than all those combined. In fact, if you go back through history with Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great and the Romans and the Greeks and all those different armies, if you combine the intensity of every battle fought by every man, I'm going to place you at the front of a battle that's a hundred times worse than that. What would you do for the next six months? Sit on your couch and eat chips? Run and hide? Or do you think you might engage in training that you could withstand that battle, that you could live through that battle? Truth is, is we don't have six months to train. We have somebody right now that's seeking to devour us, to consume us. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your enemy, devil, is running about, pardon me, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour consume. That's what he desires to do with you. There's a battle raging and we need to be engaged in that war so that we're seeing the seriousness of it. That we understand what's at stake here. It's a winner take all battle for my heart. Either I'm going to get engaged in this battle or I'm going to sit around like the rich man in Luke chapter 12 who sees how good life seems to be and say to my soul take thine ease, eat, drink and be merry. Either I'm going to get engaged in that battle or I'm going to find myself in a position of comfort and I'll sit on my couch and I'll die. Unfortunately, there's many in this room that can think back to their younger years in their lives. It's wonderful that we have so many great young people looking forward to the week of working with them and spending time with them, watching Michael train them how to sing. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. These works like these have been going on for a long, long time. Some of you that are adults and maybe even grandparents can remember when you were the young one sitting on the pews. And you remember that there were other people sitting there with you that are no longer members of the Lord's kingdom. For some, it's too late. They've passed on from this life. For others, it's friends and, that you knew, family members that you knew, that at some point walked away. There's a battle for your soul that's just as real. And we need to be engaged in that battle, training ourselves to fight. Paul says it this way, Know ye not that they which run in the race run all, but one receives the prize. So run ye that you may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it for an in, to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertain. I fight, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it to subjection that lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should not, be a, I should not be a castaway. Notice what he says here. I'm training myself to recognize this battle. And when I fight, I fight or I run not as uncertainty. There's not any weird plan here. 
I've got a purpose in what I'm trying to do. I'm not just going, oh, I think I'll run today and maybe tomorrow I won't and I might skip it for three or four weeks. He says, I have a plan. I'm not running uncertainty. I'm not sitting here just swinging my fist wildly in the air. Any of you that work out regularly or members of a gym, you can always spot when a new person walks in that's unfamiliar, that's just beginning. Not making fun of them, but you can see them walking in, that they're unfamiliar with the equipment. They don't know how to use it. And some of it seems obvious after you've learned to use it, but for some people it's their first time and they don't know what they're doing. And you see them, they begin to, to use the machine wrong. And then you watch them and, and their exercise workout program makes no sense. They'll, they'll work out different muscle groups that aren't fitting together. They'll do one exercise that works out one muscle group and then another. And, and anybody that's trained knows that that's not the most efficient way to train. They're training uncertainly. They're beating the air. Paul says that's not what you and I need to do. We need to strive to obtain that crown. We need to have purpose, to have passion, to have a plan on what we're striving to do and what we're trying to achieve in our lives to become what it is that God calls us to become. That I'm willing to get down in the dirt, the mud and the muck of my life to get on the sweaty gym clothes and to put in the work, the holy sweat that's needed to exercise myself unto godliness. I want to emphasize as we talk about this, this motivation to train, it's about the grace of God and it's real tempting for us sometimes to, to miss the point of, of becoming godly. There's a battle to think it's about ourselves. And there's three ways to look at growing and maturing. One would be what we would call legalism. One is what I would call Gnosticism. And one is discipleship. Legalism is about making sure that I keep the law. That I can check off all these lists and say, I've done this, I've done this, I've not done this, I've not done that. Gnosticism, if you're familiar with the Gnostics from the early 1st, 2nd century, these were individuals that said it's not about the outside, but it's about the inside. As long as I love God, as long as I have knowledge of God, then I'm okay, even though my flesh may sin. And they thought it was all an inward focus. Discipleship stands in contrast to those. You see, when we begin to look at the focus of those, you see the focus of legalism is an outward focus, righteousness. Look how good I can be. Look what I can do. Well, Gnostics is the same thing, but it's an inward focus. Look what I know. Look how smart I am. Look how religious I am. You might even hear someone say, it's about my relationship with God. Discipleship, it's not about one or the other. It's the whole thing about becoming what God has called me to, cleaning the outside and the inside together, becoming holy, righteous, becoming godly. You know, the strength to become legalistic or Gnostic is about me. It's about what I can and can't do, what I can and can't know. Look at my strength, look at my ability, look how well I can control myself, look how smart I can be, yet the strength to become what God calls me to become isn't about me. It's about God. Him strengthening me, Him equipping me, Him empowering me to do the things he's called me to do. And at the end of the day, that's where the glory goes is to God. Discipleship isn't about me. Exercising myself to godliness isn't about how great I can become. It's about yielding myself to God and letting him become the master of my life. To be God-centered is to say God is the one that controls my life. Anything else is all about me and it says, look how well I am. That I'm doing these things not for myself, but to seek God's glory. And as we begin to wrap up the study this morning, I want to tell you that's the end goal of our training. It's not about lifting myself up. It's not about saying, look what kind of disciple I can be. Look what I can know. It's about does every facet of my life, how I think, 
where I go, what I do? Does every fiber of my life, every moment of my life, seek the glory of God? That's godliness. That's what he's called us to exercise ourselves towards, to glorifying God. Notice, if you will, here in James chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is about my whole life being yielded into God. We looked at that chart just a second ago. It was one or the other. But drawing near to God, becoming God-like, godliness, is about both. About washing the hands and purifying the heart. It's about looking for my life in ways that it can glorify God. Notice what he says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God, not just in your body, not just in your spirit, but in both that belong to God. That's what he said in Romans 12, wasn't it? That we take our bodies, our lives, and make it a living sacrifice because they're no longer mine. You see, if I want to wash my hands and focus only on the washing of my hands, I become like those Pharisees. If I focus only on the Spirit, I become like those Gnostics. But when I do both, I become what it is God called me to become. So how do I wash my hands and cleanse my heart? That's what we're going to study a lot about this week. We're going to look at, just real quickly though, kind of wrapping up what would be the sum total of this week. We wash our hands and cleanse our body by accepting, number one, that it's not mine. My heart isn't mine. My body isn't mine. I was bought with a price. Everything I am, everything I have, isn't me. It belongs to God. My private thoughts, my public thoughts, my tongue, my mind, everything isn't mine anymore. It belongs to God. Therefore, I'm not going to let sin reign in my body. I'm not going to let sin reign in my mind. I'm going to let God reign in that. Notice in Romans 6, he doesn't talk there about never sinning, never falling short. He's saying don't let sin reign, be king, be Lord. He said instead you let God be the king. You let God be the Lord. So to be godly is to make sure that God is reigning in me and not sin reigning in me. Not in my body, not in my mind, but that God reigns in every fiber of my life. Therefore, I keep my body and I keep my heart under subjection. I control it. I don't let it give in to the lust of the flesh, to the pride of life, to the lust of the eyes. I keep it under subjection. I keep my heart with all diligence because it's not mine. It belongs to God so that my heart, my body glorify God. That's my end goal. That's what we're trying to achieve. And this week as we begin the study of these things of how we can do that, I hope that we'll keep in mind that as we talk about our heart, as we talk about our mind, as we talk about these various things that we keep in mind, it's not about how good of a person you can be. It's not about how good you can look on the outside or how much you can know. It's about surrendering yourself to God that your life might glorify God. One last passage I want to share with you is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what we're after. Cleansing ourselves and exercising ourselves in such a way that doesn't reflect my strength and my glory but prepares me to face the attack that I don't lose that battle because God 
saved me from who I was, a broken person. And I'm responding by yielding every part of my life to him in every way. This afternoon when we come back together, we're going to talk about some tools for this training, some things that we need to be aware of. We're not going to get into specific what-tos and things of that nature. We're going to talk a lot about attitudes of training and the mindset that we need to train. But it begins with me making the decision to train. There's a lot of people that know they're out of shape, that know they're not eating healthy. And they'll go, yeah, I should probably eat healthier. Pass me the cake, please. That's what we do. Spiritually, it's not any different. We know we need to train. We know we need to grow. That we need to exercise ourselves unto godliness. The question is, are you going to ask for the cake? Or are you going to put that aside and commit yourself to exercising unto godliness? To putting in the holy sweat. To dig into the life that you have. Make it uncomfortable. Make it challenging. To become what God called you to be. That's what we're going to talk about this week. If you're with us this morning and you've not made that commitment, let me beg you this morning to stop and think about who you are. That you are a broken person. A sinner standing in need of God's grace. And if you obeyed his call, you became a sinner who received God's grace. Because of who you are, God calls you to respond to that by surrendering your life in every area. Not just to become obedient and be saved, but now to exercise yourself to godliness. If you've not made that commitment, you want to do that today. I want to tell you as we begin, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't make the commitment for you. I can't help you keep that commitment. The elders here might be wonderful men. There might be a lot of great people in this audience. But if you have a spiritual need, there's nothing they can do except take it to God. If you'd like to have that blessing this morning of having your spiritual needs met, we're going to offer an invitation song. Not my invitation, not the invitation of this congregation, the invitation of Jesus Christ who stands before you today calling to you to commit yourself to him. If you need help doing that, he stands ready to meet those needs because Christ can change your life even today, even this morning. If you'd like to take advantage of that, we ask you to have a seat in this front row as we stand now to sing the song that's been selected.